Well, New Hampshire is also Trump country. Welcome back to the Andrew Giuliani Show, friends. And as we said last week, Iowa is Trump country. New Hampshire is Trump country. And I have to say, it was a much more challenging terrain for President Trump, and he still won by double digits. When you look at the fact that this was an open primary, meaning independents could vote in Iowa, and you look at the fact that Nikki Haley, who finished second, 70% of her voters were made up of non-Republicans, non-affiliated independents. The fact that President Trump was still able to win by double digits right now, over 54% of the vote, beating Haley by over 11 points, I think shows, again, the strength of President Trump as a candidate. It's very impressive. Uh, and it shows also that Nikki Haley is not pushing for the conservative voters. She's not pushing for conservative values. We've covered this time and time again over the last month. We will cover it again with South Carolina approaching if Nikki Haley does, in fact, stay in the race through South Carolina. Right now, the polling has her down by over 35 points, 37, 38 points in her home state of South Carolina. And the truth is, that's not going to change. And I'll tell you why that's not going to change. Because in South Carolina, Nikki Haley is a very known commodity. Look, politics or not, you've probably heard of Nikki Haley over the last 10 years, 15 years, uh, as she, as her popularity has grown, first as governor and then as Trump's UN ambassador. But in South Carolina, they've known her for a lot longer than that. They've, loaned, they've known her in a much more intimate way, and that's not a shot in any kind of way. They've just known her from seeing exactly her day-to-day -day and what she's done as governor. Um, and so the fact that in a state that's your home state, that you were governor, elected twice, you only get 25% of the vote in a two-person matchup where your opponent is getting over 63% of the vote, it shows you the weakness that Nikki Haley actually covers with conservatives. The other thing, too, I'd like to point out with New Hampshire independents and non-affiliated, and even some Republicans, they're different than many of the independents uh, and, in some cases, some of the Republicans in other areas of the country. Now, what do I mean by that? You can just look kind of at their voting. Look at the fact that they've elected Sununu as governor, somebody who's been an avowed never-Trumper throughout his entire time, and they've continued to elect him. So they have no problem kind of going against the MAGA movement, if you will. And that's something that they've relied on, that they've pushed on in New Hampshire. It's going to be a very different terrain in both South Carolina, in Nevada, and if this goes even further into Super Tuesday, potentially. Um, although, I do expect at some point here that the Haley campaign, the Nikki Haley will, maybe not the Haley campaign, but specifically Haley will look at the writing on the wall and decide whether or not she wants to embarrass herself or not. Now, you might ask again, why is she continuing on? If she, see, if she sees she is down 37 points in the state of South Carolina, her home state, why would she continue on when you could potentially get embarrassed like that? Well, I think for her, this is a leverage play. And there's another theory that uh, my friend Curtis Sliwa has on this, which I'll let him share on air, um, which actually makes some sense. I've been thinking more and more about it. So we'll share this at some point here, uh, maybe over the weekend on our Sunday show, it's Sunday at 8 o'clock on WABC. Um, but what I can tell you is she is pushing because she's trying to get the leverage to come back to Trump at some point and say, this is why I need to be 
your vice presidential candidate. So I'm just telling you the strategy that's going on in Haley's mind, and I think with the Haley camp. Now, there's a big push, myself included, who have said, I don't think Haley is the right VP choice. I know she's lobbying for it. I know she's been pushing for it hard. But this, to me, just seems like a real problem, especially when you have a president in President Trump that if and hopefully he gets elected as the 47th president of the United States, you're going to have a one-term president, right? He has one more term to go. So that vice president basically is, you can argue, a candidate, the, the primary candidate in waiting. Uh, and that's why I think this vice presidential pick is so much more important when you look at the future of our country. And that's why I think there's been uh, a big push against Nikki Haley as being that. Now, there are arguments on two sides saying, well, what's the best path to get elected? And what's the actual best thing for the movement going forward? And they're at odds right now. I think they might be. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see how this develops, what this looks like over the coming month, if Haley can get some momentum to try to make this pitch to Trump, and whether or not this is something uh, that President Trump will listen to. I know he said that he's had uh, a vice presidential candidate selected. I've heard that uh, the rumors that Elise Stefanik is on that shortlist. You heard on this show less than a month ago that I am a big supporter of Elise Stefanik. I think she's the most dynamic elected official in the state of New York, somebody who's loyal, somebody who's incredibly smart, somebody who I think is going to take this MAGA movement uh, through to the 21st century here, it, through deeper into the 21st century, I should say, and uh, somebody who I certainly support uh, in Congress, and I think she'd make a fantastic vice president. I've also said this about Sarah Sanders as well, um, and there'll be others. We'll do a show as we get closer to this about what the vice presidential candidates actually look like here. But that's kind of a little bit of a recap here from New Hampshire. We'll dedicate a show to South Carolina if there, in fact, is a primary going into South Carolina. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But the other topic, and I'm going to talk about two more topics today. We're going to talk about the border, and we're going to talk about the fight with Texas and some of the other states now joining Texas against the United States of America and the Biden administration who has completely uh, failed in protecting our borders here in the United States, not just the southern border, but also the northern border, the southern border to a much larger degree. But as New Yorkers, we certainly are focused, focused on the northern border as well. But before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about Ohio House Bill 68, which has just become law overriding Governor Mike DeWine's veto. 
Now, DeWine joined only Asa Hutchinson as the only governors in the country to override, to veto, I should say, uh, what has been called in the leftist media, gender affirming care for minors. Now, we know that when you're talking about minors specifically, it's not gender affirming care, this is gender mutilation. That's what this is. When you have kids as young as nine years old on hormone, being given hormone and testosterone blockers, when you're talking about surgery for kids as young as 13 years old, um, it sadly, it makes no sense. It is beyond disheartening. And as a father, as somebody who uh, cares about my child very much, to see in states like New York and California and Illinois and some of these other blue states pushing the idea that the schools or that guidance counselors won't have to tell parents if their child is thinking about taking hormone or testosterone blockers um, is one of the scariest things and one of the scariest examples of parents ceding controls to the government and to the schools. Uh, it is evil. That's what it is. It is pure evil. The Ohio House bill, which has now become law overriding Governor Mike DeWine's veto, also says that girls cannot compete against biological boys in sports. And now let me be very, very clear about this. I've said this time and time again on the campaign trail. I got uh, ripped by the leftist media about this at one point because I said, you know, my daughter's a girl and, and she's going to stay a girl. Um, here's the deal. If you are of legal age, and I know that there's been some discussion about, well, is that 18? Should that be 25? Because the brain doesn't fully form until 25. And I agree with that. Maybe it's 18. Maybe it's 21. Maybe it's 25. But if you are of legal age uh, and you can make decisions for yourself, if you can rent a car, let's say, remember, car rentals don't even let you take out a car until you're 25 years old, yet we're allowing these children as early as nine years old to make decisions that are going to affect them for the rest of their life. They're going to have a major effect on their opportunity to reproduce. If you're going to let these kids make these decisions, these life-altering decisions uh, at this age, um, it is, it's unconscionable, really. Uh, and in doing my research for this specifically, I wanted to go look at the regret numbers. Now, as you might imagine, just doing a simple Google search of regret percentage or regret numbers on gender mutilation, or put it in their words, gender affirming care, either way, you can see that there has been a study that has been pushed by the NIH, National Institute of Health, uh, saying that 1% even a slightly less than 1%, 0 0.9% .9 regret gender-affirming care. So I had to dig a lot deeper into this. This took um, close to an hour just to dig through search results to be able to find more information on the percentages because I've heard stuff about mental health and what this actually meant for children and the regret numbers, how high they are. Obviously, I've heard many, many different individual stories about people who had started taking puberty blockers, started actually detransitioning from boy to girl, 
um, or even had mastectomies and, and major surgeries. Uh, and uh, here's what I ended up finding, which I thought was actually fascinating. In 2016, the Obama administration refused to cover this by Medicare plans, right? They actually looked at this and they looked at whether or not they should cover transgender surgery in minors. And here's the reason why they gave, and I'm gonna read a quote right now from this. The majority of studies were non-longitudinal, exploratory type studies, for example, in a preliminary state of investigation or hypothesis generating, or did not include concurrent controls or testing prior to and after surgery. So that's a big part of the studies, right? You've got to actually test before, you've got to test after, you have to have a control group. Look, I was not a science major in any way, but I do remember in, in sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth grade science, how important it is to have that control group when you are doing a scientific experiment specifically. This is much more important than just a scientific experiment as you're talking about people's lives. But a very, very important point right there. Several reported positive results, but the potential issues noted above reduce strength and confidence. After careful assessment, we identified six studies that could provide useful information. Of these, the four best designed and conducted studies that assessed quality of life before and after surgery using validated, albeit nonspecific, psychometric studies did not demonstrate clinically significant changes or differences in psychometric test results after. One more quote specifically from this, as I think it's important to talk about the potential increase uh, in death rates, because this is something that really should be studied, right? I think uh, if, as DeWine said, if he really believed about protecting human life on this, um, then we really should get to the bottom of this, right? Just like we've talked about with the shot, with the vaccine, um, you need to actually get to the real numbers on this to really decide whether or not this is something uh, that you personally should do or should not do. Um, and parents certainly need to be doing this and having oversight over their children because we see the political push. We see the push that's coming through social media and the peer pressure that is being generated in a lot of schools for kids to potentially do this. So one more quote from the Obama administration's CMS, uh, which said they were not gonna cover this under Medicare plans. And I think the reason uh, are very, very interesting. The reasons are very, very interesting. The study, the study identified increased mortality and psychiatric hospitalization compared to the matched controls. The mortality was primarily due to completed, to completed suicides. Yeah, they said completed suicides. 19.1 uh, fold greater than in control groups. But death due to neoplasm and cardiovascular disease was increased two to 2.5 times as well. So they're saying that there can be some real cardiovascular problems, some real heart problems here, uh, blood flow problems, uh, to the point where you're two to two and a half times more likely to die potentially if you get this, according to the Obama administration's quoted study in their Medicaid uh, coverage here. We note mortality from this patient population did not become apparent until after 10 
years. So that's also a very, very interesting thing because if you look at a lot of these studies that have come out now, they have not done the long-term look into how these children that are being transitioned, how they ultimately feel a decade, two decades later. So the Obama administration itself says that they did not become apparent, that this did not become apparent until after 10 years. The risk for psychiatric hospitalization was 2.8 times greater, almost three times greater than in controls, even after adjustment for prior psychiatric disease, which is 18%. The risk for attempted suicide was greater in male to female patients, regardless of the gender of the control. Further, we cannot exclude therapeutic interventions as a cause of the observed excess morbidity and mortality. The study, however, was not constructed to assess the impact of gender reassignment surgery per se. Again, the study was not constructed to assess the impact of gender reassignment surgery per se. So what was it designed to do? Many of these studies are designed with a result in mind, and that is very dangerous. And that's why children should not, should not be getting these gender reassignment surgeries. Again, if you're of legal age and you want to do that, then guess what? The government shouldn't step in your way. As somebody who really believes in a limited government, then that should be your right to be able to do that as an American citizen. It's one of the beauties of United States of America, whether or not you may agree with somebody or not on that, that's their personal freedom. But we do have a duty and an obligation to protect our fellow citizens, especially, especially those that have not developed their brain enough to be able to make this life-altering decision. And sadly, you see too many parents completely brainwashed when it becomes to this and looking at evidence that's cherry-picked to get to a result, that result being that their child should take on this gender mutilating care. I mean, think about how crazy it is to talk about children as young as nine years old, nine years old, taking hormone blockers, cutting off your testosterone supply, to talk about children at 13 and 14 years old getting mastectomies and major gender reassigning surgery, as they call it, gender mutilation surgery. That's what it is. So this is something that obviously I feel very strongly about. This is something that uh, I'm very happy that the Ohio Senate and Assembly, their Congress, their local Congress, uh, ultimately saw was the right thing to do in overriding this governor's veto. Kudos to them. And uh, if you ever, ever want to actually look into this data, like I said, go and look at what the Obama administration said in their CMS, their Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, um, and why they decided not to cover this in young children. They saw the problems about this. They've been burying this for a while. Like I said, you do a Google search on a search engine here, you're going to see a lot of the results, the CNN push results of the NIH study. And I want you to dig deeper in all this. And like I said, it's not coming from a conservative source. It's coming from the Obama administration. Okay, one final word here on the situation in Texas. As New York has effectively become a border state, which 
You know we have over the last uh, year and a half since Mayor Adams has uh, called Governor Abbott racist and challenged him to send up uh, illegal migrants here into New York City, and they're coming busloads by the day, talking about close to 200,000 have now come through New York City. At this point, we have over 70,000 still in New York City, and you could see the massive budget shortfall. One of the main reasons is due to this illegal migrant crisis. So as many of you know, Texas took matters into their own hands. They said the Biden administration, which has let over nine and a half million illegal migrants over the last three years, that's right, we're approaching 10 million illegal migrants over the last three years that have come to the United States of America. Texas said, look, we are at a breaking point. We need to stop this. We need to defend our state. And what they did was they started putting up their own wall effectively. And the response the Biden administration gave to Texas was not, hey, you know, we realize this is a crisis. This may be something that we should get behind. Maybe we'll let you take the lead on this. Or, you know, maybe we'll actually look at your example and say, you know what, we're going to push this forward because this is the right thing to do. You know what they did? You know what they did. They sued them. And sadly, the Supreme Court in a temporary stay ruled five to four that the CBP, that Biden's CBP now, can actually cut the razor wire fence that the Texas Guard put up. Well, look, over the last day and a half, two days, you've had governors from the state of Florida, state of Virginia, Christy Noem, other governors, as I'm speaking to you right now, are backing this up as well, standing with Texas, saying Texas has a right and has a duty. And that's the point. It's not just a right to defend itself. They have a duty to defend the citizens of Texas because you think about what has happened in New York City alone over the last year and a half. We're talking about 170 to you know, 190,000 illegal migrants that have come through New York City. We're dealing with 70,000 right now. In Texas, you're talking about nine and a half million that have come through. Probably about six or seven million that are still in the state of Texas right now. Think about the comparison. New York City, the largest city in the United States of America, can't handle about 100,000, 100, 200,000 illegal migrants. Yet Texas is dealing with 9.5, 9.6 million coming into the state. It is an absolute crisis in the state of Texas. And the fact that Biden doesn't want to do anything about it, and actually doesn't even want to not do anything about it, is actually going after Texas for trying to protect Texans and trying to actually enforce the rules. Um, good for Texas for standing up for themselves. This is an issue of states' rights, and I believe Texas is in the right to be able to do this. And uh, I really hope they're able to win this standoff for the sake, not for political sake, but for the sake of Americans, for the sake of the United States of America, for the sake of us New Yorkers, right? We can't continue to have legal migrants come into New York for the sake of those in Chicago, in Denver, that are getting by the busload more and more and the stress that this is putting on all of our cities. But remember, the stress that it's putting on the state of Texas, it's incomparable to what's happening in New York. It's so much greater than what is happening in New York right now. The media rarely covers it, maybe because New York's a major media center, maybe because you finally have Democratic mayors that are going out there yelling about this after inviting this, as, as Adams had done, so doing a complete 180 on this stuff. 
Uh, but it's about time that you had Texas stand up for itself, doing the right thing, protecting the state of Texas, and in turn, protecting the United States of America. So we'll see where that is next week. I'm sure there'll be uh, some more to talk about there. Remember, you can catch me on with my friend Curtis Sliwa at 8 p.m. on Sunday at WABC. And thank you very much for tuning in. See you next week.